Hello, welcome to Critical Thinking, Critical Issues, the podcast that brings you insights on some of the most important topics in financial markets at the moment. 2022 has been the year of the rise of inflation, awakening what seemed like a dormant beast. And today we're going to talk about an asset class that brings you qualities that can help protect you against inflation, as well as bringing a lot of other positive qualities to your portfolio. I'm Damien Davis, an investment director within Mercer's investment solutions business. And today to delve into this topic, I'm delighted to be joined by Rebecca Myatt, a portfolio manager with First Centier Investors, and Indira Sabatova, a portfolio manager with Mercer. Both Rebecca and Indira specialize in the infrastructure space, and I think that makes them the perfect guests today as we look to explore both the benefits of listed infrastructure and also look at what the future holds for infrastructure as an asset class. Rebecca, Indira, it's really good to have you both here today. Thank you for having us. Amazing. Okay, so I think the best place to start this conversation is at square one. What is listed infrastructure? Because I think many of our listeners won't be familiar with the asset class or may have different opinions on what the asset class is. And importantly, why would an investor allocate to infrastructure? Yeah, so we define listed infrastructure companies as exhibiting four main characteristics. So that's barriers to entry. So those monopolistic characteristics, pricing power, you know, the ability to increase prices at or above inflation, predictable cash flow and sustainable or structural growth. So think of, you know, transport companies such as toll roads and airports, freight railway, uh, utilities and renewables, water and waste and communications infrastructure such as mobile towers and data centers. Given these characteristics, and we have seen clients allocating to listed infrastructure in many different ways, we first saw it really as a defensive low volatility equity. Um, this then expanded to see it used as a potential source of income as we saw declining bond yields. That increased the attractiveness of the asset class for its relative appeal of growing dividend streams. Then we've seen listed infrastructure form part of a real asset segment for investors' portfolios. That's really because of its long life, hard assets, and ability to offer insulation from the effects of inflation. We've also seen investors utilize it um, as a diversified liquid and lower fee alternative to unlisted infrastructure. And now, given that investment in infrastructure is required at every stage of the net zero pathway, clients are using it to fight the climate emergency. I think Rebecca and I would probably echo each other quite a lot in this discussion. And I think even in this uh, instance, talking about what infrastructure, what role does infrastructure play uh, in total portfolio level? Again, similarly at Mercer, we do think um, it is not just the one investment characteristic that is attractive, but it's actually three. And again, downside protection, inflation sensitivity, as well as superior dividend yield versus broader, broader equities. And that is what we have observed historically. Um, in addition to this, three key attributes, again, as Rebecca has uh, mentioned, diversification benefits are also quite important, uh, given um, this asset class has a low overlap, as well as low predicted beta relative to global equities. Um, and again, we see clients using it for um, for various um, reasons, whether they want all three key investment characteristics or whether they want just to access one of those. But I think it's important to note that for clients who are not able to invest um, in unlisted infrastructure, this presents a particularly appealing um, asset class given its highly liquid nature and cost-effective offering. 
really interesting. Um, I was away at a wedding recently. Um, we were driving to the location of the wedding, but we were on a, a Vinci toll road, which, which runs toll roads. And we flew through a, an airport that was run by AENA. So sometimes these infrastructure companies can feel like they're hidden in plain sight, but really uh, are providing services that we're using all the time. Um, maybe when we think about infrastructure, for me, it feels like the world is changing. Um, you know, the infrastructure that we're going to need over the next 20 years or so might look quite different than the infrastructure we've seen over the last 20, 30, 40 years. How do you see the, the, the asset class changing and evolving as we go forward into, into the new world? Well, I think the world of infrastructure in general has been subject to significant amount of changes over years. And some of those changes have, have actually been accelerating and even taken a new form in the recent past. But I think if we could put them into key categories, I would probably highlight uh, two from our perspective. Firstly, um, deeper and more gradual ways in which the asset class has been changing are driven by evolutions that take in place in energy, mobility, uh, digitization space, as well as a strong influence of economic and social transformation that the world has been experiencing. Um, I think it's also important to know, to know that in addition to this, forces, the COVID-19 pandemic has led to further structural shifts in economic development. And as you have said, Damien, infrastructure plays such an important role in the entire world and everyday life that uh, this shift in economic development will, of course, also have a profound impact on infrastructure space. For example, large-scale social uh, changes driven by acceptance of remote working and what it actually would mean for network technology as well as infrastructure supporting it. If we think about the second category, uh, it's probably decarbonization and accelerated path to energy transition, which also have a profound impact on listed infrastructure space. And infrastructure tends to be considered as a, one of the most carbon intensive asset classes, uh, given it's responsible for more than 79% of global greenhouse emissions. However, we do believe it also represents one of the greatest opportunities for investors, given that this asset class serves as one of the most important tools in the future transition to green economy. Yes, yeah, so as Indira mentioned, yeah, there's a few structural growth drivers happening that are really changing the way that companies invest and position themselves for the future. You know, you mentioned increased digitalization. That's really changing the way some of our companies operate. If you think about the freight railway industry, for example, you know, advanced routing software can ensure that locomotives have minimal wait time, making sure that they're more operationally efficient, allowing them to pollute less. Um, you know, smart meters and the networks, we're thinking now about two-way flow for how we use energy and for energy to be optimized. You know, economies pushing towards net zero, you mentioned decarbonization. That means that the marginal dollar of capital investment is now going towards renewables and network expenditure. And with increased physical risk of climate change, we're seeing more spend go towards resiliency of the grid. For example, you know, undergrounding networks. Another one to note is the way that, you know, we consume data is ever evolving and changing. You know, I remember the days, unfortunately, I'm old enough to when you only have made a phone call or a text message with this mobile device. Now we're watching our favorite Netflix series, you know, on the on the bus going to work. 
you know, the, this means that mobile towers, you know, are, are going to see um, least revenue growth from carriers investing to cope with this increased mobile um, data usage. And data centers may benefit from outsourcing of IT deployments and this move to, to cloud computing. I remember those days too. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think uh, I think Wi-Fi and mobile phones is a perfect example from the '90s to now. It's become so integral. If you unplugged us from Wi-Fi or, or, or cell phones, uh, things would fall apart. And similarly, when we look forward, there'll be new technologies that we'll be relying on um, heavily in the next maybe twenty or thirty years. Um, okay, maybe one for you, Rebecca. Let's talk from the top down about the the landscape. Um, starting with the, the political environment. And how does that bring, you know, material risks or opportunities to the infrastructure space? Sure, absolutely. This week, I'm in Europe, so it can be felt very much in Europe around the prices that everyone is paying. Um, look, with the halting of Russian natural gas supplies to Europe, electricity prices have increased tenfold. You know, we're in an energy crisis. Um, with customers clearly struggling to pay their bills, politicians have intervened trying to, first of all, find a short-term solution to ease prices, but second of all, to think about what can happen longer term to become independent of Russia. Um, so a number of short-term measures have been discussed and a few of them enacted in certain countries. These measures include you know, capping the gas price, capping the electricity prices, finding ways to reduce consumption and just outright windfall taxes. From the measures that have been put in place, um, you know, noting that every country has been doing its own thing, the companies that have been most impacted have actually been the upstream oil and gas companies and those utilities selling in the merchant market or making windfall profits. Uh, most of the integrated utilities we look at Europe haven't actually been making excess profits. So if you look at the forward curve to their hedge generation, there's quite a big difference. So when they produce um, generation, they hedge forward one to three years. So the prices they're charging today were locked in three years ago. Now, that being said, some of the measures discussed, such as you know blanket windfall taxes on everything you earn in a certain country, would absolutely have an impact on, on the earnings profile of these companies. Um, but the European Union you know, has come up with a plan that both looks to um, I guess, reduce consumption, but equally still incentivize renewables to build. Now, longer term, Europe looks to be, you know, needing to be more energy independent. So this will be very supportive for investment in renewables, for LNG infrastructure. But, it, you know, it will take time to build these kinds of infrastructure. Um, and one thing that we will really need for this to happen um, at some pace will be an acceleration in the permitting process. So one company that I met on this trip said that to build a solar plant in Spain, they'd require 100 permits. Uh, that is, you know, that is very onerous from an administrative perspective. Yeah. So that needs to be, you know, more streamlined for this ever to happen on a on an accelerated basis. So, look, our, our view in, in Europe is, you know, it, it's not over. Um, the political risk is still there, is still clearly there. Um, and we anticipate that it's going to stay high for, for some time. Yes, and I think just echo some of the Rebecca's comments. Um, I mean, I'm based in the UK, so we feel this disruption to the global energy system quite material as well. And of course, there is no escaping fact that it's clear that any immediate shortfalls in fossil fuel production from Russia will need to be replaced by production elsewhere, even in a world working towards net zero emissions by 2050. 
However, I do believe that we should not lose sight of the fact that lasting solutions to today's crisis would actually lie in reducing demand for traditional fossil fuels by the rapid deployment of renewables, energy efficiency, and other low emissions technologies, as it has been highlighted in the IEA's recent 10-point plan to reduce the European Union reliance on Russian natural gas. So we probably need to think about it, not just in the short term, but longer term, actual objectives are much more important. And as Rebecca has said, there's vast amount of opportunities that can come from there. Um, I mean, the situation in Europe is obviously quite complex and quite nuanced and poses um, specific uh, level of challenges as well as opportunities for the listed infrastructure space. However, Rebecca, if we look across the Atlantic, we see somewhat different set of opportunities for infrastructure companies. And I'm sure that the listeners of this podcast have heard about Build Back Better Plan in the US. So maybe you can expand a little bit more on this. Yeah, so um, the Build Back Better ended up in what was called the Inflation Reduction Act. And um, this act is really supportive for renewables. So we saw an extension of tax credits for onshore wind, um, an extension for solar. Um, we, we now have a standalone tax incentive for um, energy storage. Previously, you only got a tax credit for that if you co-located it with a renewable energy source. Now you get one for the technology on its own. And we also saw some tax credits for hydrogen. So, you know, whenever you would speak to someone in the US about decarbonizing the gas stream, they talk to you about renewable natural gas. If you spoke to someone in Europe, they'd talk about hydrogen. So what this will do is it's, this will create um, a hydrogen economy as we go through time. And that's really important because today these are only, you know, kind of um, pilot projects. And what they need to do is gain size for the cost curves to come down for us to find a longer term cost competitive solution for gas. So we are definitely more, um, you know, when we look at, at opportunities globally, we are seeing more opportunities for structural growth drivers in the US than ever before. Really interesting. It feels like when you think about the energy crisis or you think about what's happened with COVID slash uh, climate change, um, it really feels like the word is catalyst. It's a, it's a catalyst to actually make large uh, large changes from, from centralised bodies uh, going forward. And um, maybe if we go a little bit further, down the down the food chain then Rebecca could you take us through some specific uh, companies or industries that you're looking at within the infrastructure pit, uh, space yeah so I think the things to note is that when we think about you know renewables so Europe has about 38 percent of its energy coming from renewables and the US is 28 percent so the US clearly has a catch-up trade first so what will happen is this inflation reduction act will help with that catch-up trade and then take them beyond. So the clear winners in all of this are, are the renewable energy providers. And one question that we get asked a lot is, you know, our next era comes up as your top 10 carbon emitters. Well, yes, that's true because it's a very large company. But this company has gone to, um, you know, create a real zero target by 2050. So, you know, we, we're really supportive of this company and their build out in terms of all, all types of, you know, renewable energy. So that will now include um, you know, them building into hydrogen. So um, so the winners out of the Inflation Reduction Act are anyone that is building renewable energy, and we anticipate all the integrated utilities will start deploying more and more of this. 
Interesting. Um, I guess if we if we take that word inflation from the Inflation Reduction Act, let's talk about that elephant in the room, inflation. Um, given the stark backdrop that we've seen in 2022 with, with, with inflation, um, I think it'd be really useful to touch on how infrastructure companies are positioned to tackle high inflation today. Yeah, so when we think about the focus list, there's around 70% of it that has some kind of inflation pass-through. Um, and at the portfolio level, that can be you know, much higher, 85 90%. Um, so the way that we have inflation pass-through is through two different mechanisms. The first can come from regulation. So regulation in the UK, they tend to earn real returns, and inflation is a direct pass-through to the consumer with a lag. The second way that we get inflation pass-through is called pricing power. So think of the freight railway companies in the U.S., you know, on the East Coast, they operate in a duopoly. They're not getting into price wars. What's happening is inflation is going up and they're able to pass that inflation on to the consumer. And we've seen that through time. So when people are thinking about places to hide from inflation, we, you know, they tend to come to us because we have that inflation protection that people are seeking today. Now, I'd be remiss to say that, you know, when inflation is, you know, eight to 10 percent, Companies also have to take their social license to operate very seriously because we are clearly having more and more customers being put into vulnerable positions. So what we are looking for our companies to do is think about how they can smooth the bill for consumers in this time period that's extremely high inflation. And that can happen by them taking a smoothing effect that maybe leaves them MPV neutral or for um, contracted services, they may choose to not take... Um, the inflation today, like a toll road, may say, okay, I'm not going to pass this inflation through to customers today, but in return, I want an extension on the concession that we operate. So there's a number of mechanisms that companies have at their disposal. And I think that social license to operate is really coming to the forefront. And I think it's important to actually, from our perspective, to highlight where active management is quite important when looking for that inflation protection, inflation sensitivity, because this is exactly where probably going company by company and understanding the dynamics of each region, but also what companies are enabling or not enabling to do can help um, clients to navigate the environment um, much better and probably being exposed to the areas they want to. My one real tangible uh, example of inflation pass-through is that if, for our listeners, if you can't tell about my accent, I'm based in Dublin, but the toll road I use most days uh, the price of that toll road changed from two euros ninety to three euros ten. So you know it's a five, six, seven percent increase uh, this year. So it has shown you know if you own that that toll road, there is nice inflation pass through. And um, obviously, I have to pick up the bill, but uh, it's it's a good quality in your portfolio from an inflation protection standpoint. And um, maybe if we pivot the conversation a little bit towards um, environmental, social, and governance. When it comes to infrastructure, some investors uh, go down the route of exclusions, simply refusing to own a particular company. But the key drawback of exclusions is that you lose the ability to, to show up, to vote, to engage with companies, to drive the change that you want to see over time. So maybe Indira, you first, you know, how should investors be thinking about ESG considerations, particularly around the infrastructure space? Yes, I, I think important to start with saying that ESG is not a black and white concept or anything related to sustainability to that to that extent. And purely relying on divestments or exclusions might not be the most appropriate or robust approach as it can actually lead to suboptimal financial results in the end. 
and also it tends to be very backward looking in nature. For example, solely rely on backward looking carbon intensity metrics might lead some investors to consider excluding the companies instead of actually accessing the opportunities by focusing on forward looking engagement within with those companies. There is, of course, benefits in using the data and the metrics, but we do think that they should not be considered in isolation and should be complemented with more forward-looking elements of the investment process, such as active engagement and active stewardship. Mercer is actually a strong advocate uh, for an active engagement, given its forward-looking nature, but also potential to have that real-world impact in the future, but actually also navigating non-financial risks that tends to be not captured very well in traditional risk management processes better. Um, when it comes to the process itself at Mercer, from engagement and stewardship approach perspective, we always actively engage with appointed managers uh, and not only trying to understand how the managers are um, engaging and influencing the investing companies, but also understand their overall engagement frameworks and policies that they have in place to ensure that everything is actually implemented in a quite robust and cohesive way. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I just don't believe that exclusions work. You know, as equity analysts, we have to be forward looking. If you wait for these companies to transform and become leaders of the future, you miss out on the multiple re-rating and the associated share price gains. Um, and, and what tends to happen with a lot of exclusionary um, screens is that, you know, people's data can be one to two years old. Um, these companies are changing so rapidly um, that just looking in the rearview mirror is not going to lead you to, you know, the better companies of, of the future. Um, and like, you know, next year, as we talked about before, was a, a great example. You know, um, net zero has become a tagline. It's become the norm, the tick, the new tick the box exercise. And a few people were just like, why has Nextera not set a net zero target? Well, for, for those that don't know, Nextera is two-thirds a regulated utility and one-third a competitive renewable generator. So, you know, we, we um, engage with this company both individually and collaboratively. And through that engagement, we were saying to them, why don't you set a, a net zero target? And they said to us, you know, they were in a regulatory rate case at the time. So it was a, you know, we got a clear sense that they didn't want to talk about future investment ahead of the regulator approving it. And in my opinion, at that stage, they were unconvinced as how they would decarbonize their gas stream. Because remember, for anyone that makes a net zero commitment, there's a really pretty asterisk at the bottom of that chart that says this is predicated on new technology coming to market and being cost efficient by 2050. Um, and that is because most companies are still not sure what that cost-effective um, technology is to decarbonize gas. Now, with a, a tax incentive for hydrogen in the US, maybe that is the solution going forward. And I think that is definitely one of the technologies that most people are looking for. But, you know, when they got comfortable around how they were seeing um, this technology evolve, they came out and made a real zero target. So, you know, it was kind of worth the wait, but, you know, real zero, no offsets, no credits, just zero carbon. And that's what we've known that they can always achieve. It was just great that they they came out and announced that to the market to give that comfort. Um, and we're absolutely sure that these guys are full steam ahead in, in going to achieve that. Amazing. That's a great example of, you know, bringing the engagement process to life. And sometimes it feels like 
you know, exclusions is just ignoring a problem exists, whereas engagement is really about actively finding a solution to a problem and, and, and taking steps forward on that journey. So that's that's a really uh, good example. Um, okay, so one final question, and it's a it's a biggie for both of you. Um, what advice would you give to investors or our listeners if they're thinking about making an allocation to infrastructure? You know, so what sh- should they be considering? What should they be looking out for when they're deploying their capital? Indira, I'll, I'll pass it to you first. Yeah, I, I think it makes sense to actually bring it back to where we started the discussion. I mean, what role listed infrastructure plays in the total portfolio and what key attributes does it actually bring? I mean, at Mercer, we do believe that listed infrastructure brings diversification benefits from total portfolio perspective. And as we highlighted together with Rebecca, it does uh it does exhibit not one, but actually three attractive investment characteristics. Inflation sensitivity, higher dividend yield, as well as downside protection. However, I do think that the asset class tends to be overlooked or even misunderstood at times. Firstly, um, despite of being considered a specialist type of equity exposure, as Rebecca uh, has explained uh, earlier, the infrastructure space is much wider than just renewable space. And it does present a quite significant level of growth opportunities that's spamming across various industries. We spoke about toll roads, we talk about freight rail technology and et cetera. Secondly, I think listed infrastructure has been receiving lots of pressure due to its high carbon footprint. And again, there is no escaping fact that building and operating infrastructure assets involves a very carbon intensive activities. However, as we discussed throughout the whole discussion, um, listed infrastructure actually plays a crucial role in the world's transition to green economy. So we should not forget about that. So I think those two key components are quite important to remember and keep in mind when thinking about this asset class and thinking about investing in it. And finally, I would emphasize the importance of active management in listed infrastructure space. Um, while whilst we understand that some clients uh, cannot uh, or are not able to invest in active strategies, in terms of having access um, to active engagement, as well as having that ability to make a real world impact, um, we do think that active, man- man- active management would still be a preferred choice. Yeah, look, when you invest in listed infrastructure, you get exposure to real assets that are either regulated or contracted with inflation protection and strong capital growth. And if you are serious about fighting the climate emergency, this is how you do it, because you required infrastructure investment at every stage of the net zero pathway. And I can tell you, we are pushing for that with all of our companies. And this is the only way that we achieve it. Amazing and really powerful messages. And with that, we're out of time. I think this is a really enjoyable conversation. I think it gives everyone a lot of food for thought around infrastructure. Um, Rebecca, Indira, um, thank you both for sharing your thoughts and insights. Uh, And to the audience, thanks once again for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of Critical Thinking, Critical Issues, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you'd like to speak to someone here at Mercer, please feel free to reach out to your local Mercer representative or send an email to ctci at mercer.com. That's ctci at mercer.com. And and with that, uh, we'll say goodbye and tune in next time. This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. 
It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions.